Well, hello, church. We're so pleased that you're with us today as we're going to worship the Lord again. Uh, and we want to give you some important notices. First of all, this Sunday, we will have our first in-person service again. We will be meeting at 4 o'clock, but this time we will be meeting at the Naples Grand Resort and Hotel. And we will be there probably into August or until the Collier School District allows us back into the high school. So we will continue to put our broadcast online sermons on just like this every week. We will continue to do that. Mark McVeigh will continue to put a music worship aspect to the broadcast as well. Uh, when we go to the uh, on-person uh, on service, we will not be broadcasting that. So if you're not going to be able to come to the service, don't worry. Come here and you'll be able to see this, this service exactly as what you would have heard if you were with us. Now, we have been blessed by God tremendously with the online broadcast. We have more than 400 views each week, and according to experts in that field, that means that most likely six to 800 people every week are sharing with us the message that we put out for Jesus Christ. We, we thank God, and we thank him for the privilege that he has given us. I also want to thank the Naples Grand Hotel uh, for allowing us to have worship there and for significantly discounting the price. May God bless those people also for their fervency. And so we have much to thank God about. You'll be hearing more about how we want to do the service on Sunday. We'll send out a message about protocols. And if you would expect to attend, I hope you'll pay attention to that notice. In the meantime, let's bow before the Lord and ask him to bless this service. Father, we thank you for the blessings in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us, for the chance to get back to worship you, Father, for protecting our people during this hiatus now. And Father, we now ask you to bless this message. Let it be your message inspired by the Holy Spirit. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We are on the subject of eternal security. This is part two of my sermon series. And it's a critically important message. And the reason for that is so many people in the Christian world do not understand eternal security. And if you don't understand eternal security, effectively you cannot have a triumphant Christian life. Meaning what? Meaning you're always walking, waiting to fall off the precipice of your salvation. Waiting for some sin to take care of you and remove you from the presence of God. And God understood that, which is why when he saved us, he saved us forever. And I've given you many verses last week, and I'll continue to give you many more verses this week so that you can understand this and convey this message to a world that is lost. They need to know this, that that's the kind of love our creator has for us, that he would embrace us and keep us forever within his family. And so continuing with some of these verses that we started to allude to last week, we have more now. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. And, and it reads as follows. In love, he, meaning God, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He predestined us to be adopted as his son. And that was a word I talked to you about last week, and I want to continue to emphasize it this week. Adopted. Paul was a first century Roman citizen. The first century church lived under the boot of Rome. They understood the laws of Rome and what Rome meant 
to their society. And the term adoption had a very Roman meaning. It meant that under Roman law, if you were adopted into a family, you could never be excommunicated from that family. You could never be dispossessed. You could never be cut off. An adopted child remained forever in the family. It meant not only were you there as part of the family during your life, you had all of the rights that accrued to the father when he died, they were yours as well. Moreover, and this is important, when you became adopted, your prior life was effectively nullified. If you had debts, they were removed. If your reputation had been sullied, that was forgiven. You had a new identity in your adopted family. That is why this word here used by Paul is so critical. I don't think there's a more important word as it relates to our salvation. Adopted, meaning God has made us the brothers of Jesus Christ. And he did that in his foreknowledge, knowing what we would do, and he predestined us to be elected that way. And so I want you to understand this. You could not be excommunicated once you were adopted. And that really underscores this entire message of eternal security. Look also, as you understand this, to Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. Again, underscoring this written by Paul. Uh, And it says here, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Understand how important this is. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Can you imagine the nature of what these verses say about what God did for us? Not only did he adopt you, but he gave you the relationship as an heir, effectively a co-heir with Jesus Christ and allowing us to call him Abba, Father. And that's an important term because that word Abba would not be used by Jews in the Old Testament as it related to God because effectively it's a word that connotes the terminology of dad, dad, the most personal nature of your father, dad, connoting love and care, dad. That is how God expects you to appreciate him and to relate to him now in this full sense. And so you see this uh, and you understand how great a salvation we have and how important it is to understand that God seals you forever. Once you are sealed and adopted into the family, nobody can cut you off. You can't be dispossessed. You're there forever. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit and you're there until God calls you home. Look also, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse And it says there, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. That's a very important verse. It is not the natural children. Understand that? In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. What does that mean? It is not the Jewish people who were taken out of the promised land, who now are looked at as God's children, but it is the children of the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ on the cross. Those are now the spiritual 
children. That is who God is referring to. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so you see the new covenant coming to terms again with what Jesus did. You have no standing merely because you could say you were a Jew, that you were the promised people of Jesus, of God. But instead, once the new covenant came into being, once Jesus died on the cross, now the question is who are effectively the children of God? And they're not the natural children. They're the children of the promise. And so God adopts those of us who are offsprings of the promise, the promise of salvation through our Lord and Jesus Christ. Look also again back to Galatians. Look now at at, uh, Galatians 3, chapter 26. And it says there, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And I want to read the next verse as well because it's important in today's day and age. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, let's understand what's going on here. When it speaks here that you are all sons of Christ, of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for you were baptized into Christ, your baptism there is not a water baptism. That's a testimonial baptism. But this baptism here, which is the baptism effectively into the body of Christ, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism whereupon God seals you forever, seals you forever. And when he does that, he effectively is putting his seal and possession on you, letting the world know that you are part of his family and he adopts you into that family. Now, when we are adopted into the family of God, we've already gone through those issues that we could never be cut off or dispossessed. That stays forever. But look also at the connotation that's described here in verse 29, right? Verse 28. Uh, In the family of God, those adopted children under the family of God, quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to allude to the so-called social gospel that we hear so much about being touted about in some of the denominations. And I will prove to you that with that verse that God does not see your nationality or see your color or see your genetic background or see your economic status. He sees you as part of the body of Christ. One person in the body of Christ without color. When you have come to salvation, he has washed you and planted you firmly in the body of Christ. You no longer have to atone for some sins that your genetic background may have committed or your nationality may have committed or white people committing against black people or white people committing against Asian people. All that is washed away under the adopted family of God. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise because that's a, that's a gospel that does not exist. I repudiate and God repudiates this so-called uh, gospel, social justice gospel. We do justice to everybody, everybody, irrespectively, because we are part of the family of God. And that's what it means. And so if we've considered all these issues about eternal security, we are forced to wonder why. I think that's why a lot of people have trouble with this. Why? They can't put their their brain around the fact that a God who is so powerful would want to have this continuing relationship 
with us. Why would he be so merciful? It certainly does not relate to our understanding of human beings. The magnitude of it is far beyond our meager understanding. It's a love that human beings find incredibly difficult to comprehend. But God's love is so deep and so profound that it existed before the beginning of creation when he saw you and knew what you would do, that nothing can ever separate you from his love. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more deeply. And yet with, even within all of this grace and with all of this love, God has not still abandoned his concept of justice. And this is important also. God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. So within his, his plan of salvation for us, there are, in fact, special rewards for those of us who would respond to him in kind with what he has done to us, meaning those of us who recognize that the gift that God has given us has been so deep and so profound that we can't help but do him his work. We want to be his hands. We want to be his feet, and we want to advance the kingdom of God. And so God makes it clear that great is their reward. Great is their reward for, for Christians who walk that way, who recognize what God has done, who does his work, who wants to, who want to be his hands and feet. And so our rank, and this is important, our rank in the future kingdom of God is being decided each and every day based on the work of our lives. And so for those of us who have an ambition to be pleasing to God and advance his work, that's great news. For others who are merely Christians in name only, not really walking with God, who are reckless in their conduct, well, that may not be such good news uh, because we will still have to be judged by Christ by what we did with the gospel. So yes, you are saved. Yes, you will be in heaven. But the question is, some of us will be poorer than others in, in heaven, as God will effectively evaluate what we did for him. Now, there's a very good passage that outlines this, I think, outstandingly, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you would turn to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. And let me interrupt that reading, meaning what? The foundation of, that we stand on as any Christian is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. If you have any other philosophy or theology other than Jesus Christ as the foundation of your life, you've made a huge mistake. He is the only foundation. And so as he continu continues there in verse 12, if any man builds on this, Foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flame. So let's look at this. Effectively, it's two people being discussed here. One person is building on the foundation of Christ every day, and the work that he builds on can be uh, called gold, silver, and costly stones. 
meaning work of value, work to advance the kingdom of God. Not work to advance yourself, but work to advance God and what God stands for. And every day that kind of work is being done and God is looking at it. But there are some people who are doing that work and they're not using and not building with gold or costly stones. But instead, what they're building is wood, hay, or straw. It may be self-service. It may, it may be for not, not advancing the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, God is looking at that work and determining that it is worthless. And according to this verse, the day will come when, when it will be brought to light. And effectively, that's when we stand before God and we stand before Jesus and he looks at what we've done. Even these are people that are saved. Let's understand this. These are saved Christians. And when God tests it, the quality of each man's work will be judged. The one that built with costly gems and gold, that will survive. But the one who built uh, on these weak systems of wood, hay, and straw, they will be burned up and destroyed. And here's the key. The man he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. Let's understand that. He will be saved. And so there's an example of a Christian that has led, let's call it a mediocre life. They're saved. They've accepted Jesus Christ, but they haven't really advanced the, the kingdom of God the way they do, the way they, way they should. And God is still, God is still saving them, even though all these works that they may have completed are, are destroyed. And so what does that mean? It means that there is a meritocracy in heaven. There is a meritocracy in heaven. And so God will judge and look at what we did, and there will be rewards. What are those rewards? Well, the best example that I can give you of that is, is by Jesus. And turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 27. And this is Jesus now speaking to Peter. And Peter is speaking to Jesus because he's bemoaning the fact that they've given up everything for Jesus. Everything. Walked away from homes and families and jobs and wondering really what, what will happen to them. And so in verse 27, of, this is Matthew 19, Peter says as follows. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. What a great promise that is. So if you do something to advance the kingdom of God, even if you've in some way diminished your life in this world, God is going to repay you 100 times. You will never be diminished. He will never see you in a lesser position. You will always be in a greater position. And here, Peter and the, and the other apostles are promised that they will effectively sit in thrones over the various tribes of Israel. What does it mean? It means really for us that God will advance our position in the kingdom of God when we serve him in this world. And that will mean uh, privilege and responsibility. I can't say it any other way. I don't want to say you're going to get a bigger mansion by the ocean because I don't know that. But I do know, based on what these words say here, that God will give you a greater position of, of privilege, responsibility, and service. You can take that to the bank. 
And then there's another verse that follows that that's pretty important also. And it says here in verse 30 of, of Matthew 19, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Meaning what? It means that there are some people who think that they actually are serving God, but they're serving themselves. The work that they're doing is not advancing the kingdom of God. It is advancing their own agendas. And all you have to do is watch television and you'll be able to see any number of so-called televangelists uh, living lifestyles of the rich and famous. And you have to wonder, are they serving God or are they serving themselves? And that's when it says there that many who, will, who consider themselves first will be last and the last will be first. Understand something. The economy and justice of God is perfect. Make no mistake about it. So yes, he is saving us. Yes, we are eternally saved, uh, and you need to have that assurance. I want you to look also at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. And he says there, He who overcomes, and this is Jesus now, He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Meaning, again, you're saved. Your name is written in the book of life. Jesus will never blot it out. It can never be taken away. Now, I want you to understand that there are a few verses that those people who oppose eternal security will use to try to cut the argument in their favor. I think it's important for you to know these verses and to know the context. As I told you always, everything is context. Context, context, context. The book of Hebrew was, Hebrews was written decidedly by a Jewish person who was writing to a Jewish audience. That's what this was about. It was being written to Jewish Christians, people who had accepted Christ and yet at some point determined to walk away from Christ and go back to Judaism. Now, they didn't go back into a life of sin, but effectively they repudiated Christianity and came back to Judaism. Why? Because the first century Roman government oppressed Christians. They crucified Christians. If you were a Christian, you were suffering. If you were a Jew, believe it or not, you were allowed to worship. They'd carved out that exception, but for Christians, it was a very difficult road. And so he's writing this passage, this writer, and we don't know who it is. He's writing this passage to let them know that they've made a very poor choice. Walking away from Christianity and embracing instead Judaism is a poor choice. Why? Well, effectively, what they've done is gone back under the Old Covenant, gone back under the Old Covenant, and they have effectively repudiated grace. There wasn't grace under the Old Covenant. It was the law. It was black or white. That's how sin was dealt with. And so they've done away with it. But if you drill down with the uh, book of Hebrews and, and look at the mindset of the writer, you'll see much that indicates that he understands how great salvation is, beginning with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And he'll use that, that word again, drifting away. It doesn't mean uh, to go back into a life of sin. Drifting away means to move away from Christianity, effectively back into Judaism. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just, its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to those who heard him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts 
of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So you see here, understanding of the writer as he begins this book on Hebrews. He's writing not about returning to a life of sin, but he's writing about drifting away from Christianity into, effectively, into, back to Judaism. And there's some other passages here that I want you to be aware of. Turn to Hebrew chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Then Christ would have had, let's, let's see, let's, let's begin with 25. Nor did Christ enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So let's understand that. He's saying there that that's what Christ has done. One time, one perfect sacrifice at the end of the age. Uh, And that sacrifice is sufficient forever. And so when we as believers walk away from the cross, it is only a matter of time when God constrains to bring us back. Notice what I said. When we as believers, when we have accepted Christ, when we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, if we drift away from that salvation, well then in fact, God will constrain us to find a way to bring us back into the fold. Make no mistake about it. Sometimes he'll speak softly, and sometimes he'll have to speak with a two-by-four. And there's all kinds of instances. But trust me, God will never let you walk away from your salvation. You're safe. God will continue to constrain to have you part of the family of God. Uh, And so our sacrifice through Christ is sufficient forever, as he's saying it right here. And so it's important to understand that that's the nature of salvation. And so there's one set of verses that those who oppose the position of eternal security point to and say this indicates that you can lose your salvation. And I want to give you these verses and bring your attention to it and teach you so that if it comes up, you're able to address it. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, a cursory reading of this might lead you to believe, well, as you see now, there's an example. There's two verses that say, well, you, you could lose your salvation. Well, it's not the case. Again, I, there's a couple of words here that need to be drawn out. One of those words here is repentance. And he's using the words repentance here, uh, meaning a change of mind. Uh, because repentance in that time, there were several meanings of the word uh, repentance. And one of them was changing your mind. And so this relates to Jewish believers people who appear to become believers in Jesus Christ, appear to be, who have somehow, because of the threats that they received, decided to change their minds and go back to Judaism. They didn't go back to a life of sin, but go back to Judaism. And so the question is, well, what does it mean here where he says that once once you've changed your mind or repented, you can't come back because you effectively are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subject, subjecting him to public disgrace. These are people who I believe were not truly saved. These are people, and when it says tasted uh, the goodness of the word of God, 
or, or saw the Holy Spirit or experienced, it's as if you were part of a community where you saw and you tasted, you saw the goodness of God. You know, there is a pre-conversion aspect of the Holy Spirit that we talked about, meaning that the Holy Spirit comes and prepares you to convert and prepares you to convict. That is tasting of the Holy Spirit. And instead of going in and giving in to that convicting power, these people walked away, all right? They changed their mind. And, and this becomes important to understand here. They were never truly saved because if you were truly saved, you didn't just taste of the Holy Spirit, you consumed it. It imbued your body. You took it in and God poured himself into you and that was part of your life. And so you, clearly, let's understand here, these are people who rejected Christianity because of the oppression of Rome and went back to Judaism and so he's saying that once you change your mind and walk away from this, it's nigh unto impossible once you've done that to come back. And he's warning them about that and, and, and telling them about the fact that they're dragging the testimony of Christ through the mud. It has nothing to do about losing your salvation. If anything, what it shows is that those people who were first century Christians, even if they were Christians and walked away from Christ, they would still be saved. And so it's important for you to understand that, and I want to make sure that you deal with this. Uh, and it, it effectively, all of this underlays eternal security. And so these verses in Hebrews are, are relevant to our discussion because they are warnings given to a group of people not trying to make up their minds about Christ, who Christ is for the first time. It's not that. Uh, at some point, these people had experienced some of the sufferings and persecutions and decided it wasn't worth it and walked away. There is a significant difference about walking back into Judaism as opposed to walking back into a life of sin. And so it's, it's very important. And he's warning them that what they're doing, they're wa walking back to the old covenant. They're walking back to a form of religion that had a great deal to say about sin and about the punishment from sin instead of embracing the new covenant, which had everything to do about grace and Jesus Christ. And how much more superior was our life with Jesus Christ than it was under the old covenant. And so this becomes important for you to understand. And furthermore, it becomes important for you to understand this, that when you are saved forever, if somehow you would begin to drift away from the cross of Christ, I want to tell you very plainly that God will find a way to bring you back. He will not allow you to drift away. You are his. He owns you. His seal is on you. And so even if you think you can walk away, and if, even if your life has become reckless and careless, I want you to know he will intervene. He will speak to you. He will touch your heart. And so this is, this is what we pray for. This is why we have this assurance that God loves us and cares for us and will bring us, bring us to the end of the finish line, will bring us into glory, will bring us into heaven so that we will have the chance to see Jesus and see our Father God and be together with our family members. What a great salvation we, we possess. What a great gift God has given us in every possible way. So I hope this message resonates in your heart and continues to lift you up and give you hope. Yes, I know we're going through dark times. Yes, I know we're being tempted. Yes, I know there's suffering here in this world right now, but I want to assure you, God is with you. Nothing will come your way that is not fully within the will of God. And he holds you and no power, no authority, nothing can take you out of his hand. 
Give this message to a lost world, a world that desperately needs to understand how great is the love of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you for what you've done for us, how you've saved us, and what eternal security means, Father, that as you've saved us, you've sealed us with your spirit and adopted us into the family of God so that nothing, no power can ever take us out. We are with you forever, Lord, and you will discipline us to keep us within the family of God. Lord, I pray that this message will resonate within our hearts, will draw us closer to the cross, will be a message that we can give to others, that you will help us to convey this message to a lost world and continue to lift up our church as we serve you in every way. Thank you, Father, for everything you've done. We put all of this in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you, church.